Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. I'm Ramsey Janini, and this is episode 5, It's Recording, Say Something. Up to now, we've considered the tinfoil phonograph in relation to Edison, America, science, preservation, spiritualism, technology, and popular entertainment. And in this episode, we'll add physiology and music into our melting pot of the first concept of sound recording. Of course, a recipe isn't just its list of ingredients. It's also a set of proportions and instructions that create something new out of common materials. Without getting overly synesthetic, I'd like us to taste, so to speak, the way the ingredients I've mentioned came together in the first descriptions and experiences of sound recording. In other words, we're going to continue trying to get a sense of what the phonograph meant and promised to people who had never even imagined that the sounds of the past could be heard again. So to begin this episode, we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of a person living in that day and age. Empty your mind. Not that empty. Let's keep the noise. This is supposed to be reality after all. That's better. Imagine yourself as an engineering student in your university accommodation in Dublin. Look around. It's the 10th of March, 1879. After a particularly heavy session the night before, You've woken up on a Monday afternoon with your shoes still on and no place that doesn't hurt. You splash some water on your face, make your way out of your building, and stumble into your local cafe for a cup of strong tea and a fried breakfast. With Friday's exam looming ever closer, you decide that despite your pounding head, you'll have to put in at least a couple hours of study. So you head towards your engineering building, looking at your shoes, listening to the sounds of Dublin. A pigeon cooing the neighing of horses and the clopping of hooves. A pub door swings open, unleashing a crashing wave of voices, violins, and sweet Molly Malone. The music continues in your head. The familiar echo of footsteps in the hall, a creaking door, the heavy silence of the study room. You drop a hefty book in front of you on the desk. It hits with a thud, which echoes at the front of your skull. Womp, 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 womp. You open your book to the chapter you've been studying. Another work, the execution of which attracted much attention, was the execution of which attracted much attention was the railway bridge crossing the Thames at Maidenhead. At Maidenhead, another work, the execu- uh, You close the book, stretch, and meander over to the notice board. Something catches your eye. Four p.m. That's in half an hour. Tenth of March, eighteen seventy-nine. That's today. Professor Barrett of the Royal College of Sciences on the phonograph, the theater of the Royal Dublin Society House. That's not too far away. The phonograph, how'd you not hear about this? Or did someone mention it the night before? Either way, studying can wait. So you grab your coat, put on your cap, and hurry down to the theater. You enter just as commanding voices declare that the lecture is about to begin and that gentlemen should take their seats. You barge your way through the crowd to get a ticket and managed to get one of the last remaining seats. Before you've caught your breath, you find yourself sitting in it. Looking around the lecture hall, you nod to a few of your professors and fellow students, and then notice the phonograph, you presume, sitting on the table, and kick yourself for not having taken a look beforehand. It looks unassuming, inconspicuous, like a glorified coffee grinder, but that machine can. 
Your thought is interrupted as Professor Barrett steps up to the podium, and you join in the applause. Welcome, gentlemen. In this world, there are rhythms in mental as well as material forces. Periods of discovery and invention appear to alternate with each other. The present time is one of unparalleled activity and invention, with each scientific marvel being succeeded by one still greater. The stimulus of commercial enterprise in the United States has quickened human ingenuity to an enormous extent. It was the vibrating point of the telephone which led Edison to the discovery of the phonograph. Edison's phonograph is not an electrical but simply a mechanical instrument. Speech itself is merely a mechanical action and as such can be automatically recorded, electrically transmitted, mechanically reproduced, and artificially imitated. In fact, attempts have been made from the time of Friar Bacon and Albertus Magnus in the 13th century onwards to imitate the organs of speech so as to make artificial speaking machines. The most perfect of these was that devised by Faber, which utters whole sentences slowly, but quite distinctly, such as most famously, I am only a machine. But the most perfect instrument for reproducing speech, and that from the records it has itself previously made, is the phonograph. The wonder is that a heavy iron plate should be able to respond to the feeble and complex vibrations set up by the voice. If, then, a point is attached to this vibrating diaphragm, it will make an impression upon a soft body placed underneath it, and by drawing this along, a series of marks will be made. This is the principle of the phonograph, where a rotating cylinder continually brings fresh portions of its tinfoil covering underneath. Impressions of indentations are thus made upon the foil by the style. These indentations, on being again placed under the style, cause it to move up and down, and thus vibrate the disc, which again sets the air in motion which corresponds exactly to the motion first set by the voice. It is the simplicity, as much as the ingenuity of this instrument, which has excited the wonder of so many scientific men. If you bear with me, gentlemen, I shall presently demonstrate the instrument. With that, he proceeded to indent the vibrations of his voice on tinfoil. And when the professor's voice rang out of that machine, dot, dot, dot. That was based on a true story. At least, the lecture itself actually happened, and I like to think that on some level of collective consciousness, we were actually there. Although, in the lecture we actually heard, as opposed to the lecture we actually heard, the professor spoke at much greater length on all the topics mentioned in that brief summary. The newspaper articles reporting on the lecture, which appeared in several different publications, were among the last substantial articles on the phonograph to appear in British newspapers before eight years of silence, a silence that would again be broken by Edison with his improved phonograph of 1888. In this respect, Professor Barrett's lecture was something of a bookend and summation of the first concept of the phonograph, a phonograph that was a technological marvel, but not yet a commercial product. Professor Barrett didn't speculate much on the future possibilities of the instrument. He was more focused on the phonograph's past and present. Regarding the present, he spoke at length about the mechanics, as we'd expect, as well as the new instrument's implication for current at the time scientific research on voice, speech, and sound. Regarding its past, he historicized the phonograph with respect to its capacity to produce the human voice as well as its capacity to write sound. And what I find particularly interesting is that he connects both of these trajectories to a corresponding shift in how people were beginning to think about the body and sound. In his words, 
The difficulty most people had in understanding both the telephone and the phonograph arose from the fact that they supposed speech to be something essentially associated with life, whereas it was simply a mechanical act. He spoke about musical sounds in a similar mechanical way, perhaps suggesting a parallel transition where music was no longer considered primarily as a representation and expression of natural harmonies of the universe, but rather simply the organization of tones and sounds. For the professor, we were constructing machines based upon the mechanisms of the body. And in turn, we were beginning to think about ourselves, our expressions, and the universe itself in a more mechanistic fashion. We said earlier that scientific lectures were extremely important in this earliest period of phonography, not only because they spread knowledge and awareness of sound recording, but also because they provided the first opportunities for the public to actually hear and experience the instrument. It's not entirely surprising, then, that these demonstrations gave rise to some of the earliest skepticism regarding the practical potential of the machine as well. Just ten months before Professor Barrett's presentation, a lecture was given by a Mr. Thompson in Bristol that the Bristol Mercury and Daily Post called one of the first demonstrations of the instrument outside of London. Mr. Thompson's presentation was in most respects quite similar to the professor's. It opened with a description of the phonograph as an instrument of American ingenuity, and proceeded typically to discuss the mechanics of the machine. But in contrast to Professor Barrett, Mr. Thompson spoke a bit more about the instrument's future, and he expressed a disappointment of sorts, accusing the American press of greatly exaggerating the capacities of the machine. I suppose in entertainment terms, for Mr. Thompson, it was something like an overhyped American summer blockbuster. He stated that it was difficult to know if much use would come out of the invention, as a recording he had made three days ago was no longer recognizable. Consequently, he concluded, claims of being able to store the voices of the departed to hear long after death were beyond the current capacities of the instrument. Mr. Thompson's doubts were based on the durability of the recordings, which was the essential factor in making practical use out of the invention. And while he was wrong to doubt that these technical problems would be solved within years, it's refreshing in a way to hear a voice of pessimism in an era when telepathy and mind-reading machinery felt just around the corner. Well, if day three of a sound recording's life was a letdown, day one was pretty mind-blowing in most accounts. While speaking machines had been constructed before, none of those machines had produced the voice of an actual person. They were, for better or worse, machines that produced human-like sounds, and while impressive and entertaining and at times a bit spooky, they didn't exactly hurt the head. But with the phonograph, not only did the machine sound exactly like an actual living person, more or less, but it was also saying something that had already been said before in a seemingly perfect reproduction of the past. The experience was doubly powerful when it was your own voice you were hearing. Hearing one's own voice emanating from another source had only previously been possible in any capacity through echo. But to hear it from a machine cleanly separated from the moment of speech, well, it's still odd to most people, despite the technology itself being entirely familiar. I'm sure everyone has heard someone say that they hate the sound of their recorded voice. Many of you might have that opinion of your own recorded voice, and you might even have a recording of you saying that you hate your own recorded voice. And even if you don't hate it, the experience of hearing it played back for the first time was probably surprising in some way. Is that what I sound like? Is that my voice? That uncanny feeling, which I remember quite well, 
is perhaps as close as we can get to understanding how these first listeners must have felt hearing anyone's voice at all to say nothing of their own ring out from a machine. The experience was often described as mesmerizing, disorientating, eerie, and sometimes even evil. What devilry is this that I hear? Are witches stirring our melting pot? Double, double, toil and trouble, fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. Sorry, I was hoping to get that in there somewhere. Woohoo! There was and is something uncomfortable about the experience of recording one's voice in the first instance. What do you say into that little funnel as the cylinder starts turning? Many accounts of the early music industry, which will start to develop in about 10 years from the time we're discussing, describe artists being extremely uncomfortable to perform into a machine. Not only was it physically unnatural, but they were dealing with a new kind of pressure. It's one thing for a bum note to be heard in an important competition or performance, but it's quite another for that musical mistake to be preserved forever. For musicians today, and podcasters, the red light of the mechanical ear is still a tyrant, fingers and throats tightened up under the gaze of that red light. And do I really sound like that? So what did people say when the cylinder started turning and they were expected to record something? What would you have said? One guy reportedly shouted, You may think yourself a lucky fellow that you did not live 200 years ago, or you would have been burnt on the Place de Grove. You might be thinking, where was that? The Place de Grove was a public square that was the site of most of the public executions in early Paris, including most famously many of those of the French Revolution. It's now the site of the city hall, and perhaps heads are still rolling, I don't know. Well, that's quite interesting, but for me, the more interesting question is, who was the lucky fellow? Who was he talking to? Edison? Himself? Us? Well, I mean, I think, I don't know, but I think he was talking to the machine itself, which quickly took on a sort of persona, a kind of shapeshifter-like persona. People would describe or even look for little men or spirits in the machine that made it work and also search behind curtains and under tables and things. It was a way of understanding what was happening, a fantasy of spirits in the machine, a new talking machine that didn't require the complex imitations of speaking organs. The odd thing is that the truth itself, of an acoustic recording of the past, was perhaps even stranger than the story of the ghost. We'll begin exploring the idea of the phonograph as a talking machine in the next episode, which I really, really look forward to talking about. But first things first, and let's chuck our last two ingredients into the pot, beginning with a pinch of physiology. Relating closely to the discussion of sound and voice as mechanical productions, physiology, medical practice, and anatomy were all early focal points in this literature. Many, and perhaps all, of the scientific lectures at least referenced a medical or anatomical aspect of phonography, and many more newspaper articles focused specifically on these themes. For example, an article appearing in the Paul Mall Gazette called The Physiology of the Voice in the Phonograph listed a series of surgical operations demonstrating the capacity of the human voice to sound despite missing or substituted vocal organs. I want to read you a bit of this article, slightly abridged. As regards speech itself, it is wonderful how little seems to be absolutely necessary for its complete performance. Operations of the removal of the tongue have proved that men can talk fairly well without this organ. Loss of the epiglottis causes only a slight alteration of the character of the voice. One vocal cord, in cases where one is completely ulcerated away, seems capable of producing sufficient vibration for the purpose of phonation. 
and when both are removed, as Dr. Folis has demonstrated, the function of phonation can be performed by an artificial reed placed in the larynx. Lastly, the phonograph shows us that the majority, at least, of articulate sounds are producible without the aid of the peculiar resounding cavities of the mouth and nose. It was a daily paper. Horse racing results are listed just before the article, and the article below it is called This Day's Money Market, about interest rates and, well, that day's money market. It's funny to me because the horse racing results in the financial report seem so similar in tone and content to how those topics are presented and discussed now. But the article on phonography, in its specificity and its focus on mechanism and anatomy, reads like a letter from a lost world. That's why we're here, after all, to find these little jigsaw pieces and put them together somehow. You know, I see puzzles in shops and toy stores, but I haven't actually seen anyone making one since, I don't know, 1996, and that was me. Well, some Kinder Egg puzzles, I guess, but they don't really count. Anyhow, you know that feeling when two pieces almost fit, but not exactly, and you force it slightly and they stick together and it's all black because it's a border or something, and you kind of know it's wrong, but you think maybe there's like a tiny manufacturing error and it's actually right, and so you leave it and move on. For me, that's the feeling of writing history. But with the puzzle, later on you actually find the piece and think, okay, now it's right. But with history, you never get that. The pieces never fit exactly because the past is not a puzzle. It's gone. And now, the last ingredient. A spoonful of music to help the medicine go down. Music comes up in almost every substantial account from this initial period. And as we know, music will continue to play an enormous role throughout the history of sound recording. You might recall that Scott was recording songs with his phonograph long before anyone even conceived of reproducing them. We've also come across a description of an experiment of a song being recorded through a telephone onto a phonograph in Paris. And furthermore, the scientific demonstrations we've been speaking about typically featured a song or two. And these songs, along with the other recordings, would be played backwards, slowed down and sped up, and generally would be subject to all sorts of turntable trickery, so to speak, which must have been amazing to hear for the first time. They probably even did some scratching. Who wants a rewind? From pretty much day one, people began to imagine futures that included recorded music in daily lives. However, the idea of a massive recorded music industry as we know and love and or hate it while just around the corner, wasn't in the air yet. Instead, we mostly had descriptions of preserving important voices and performances for the future. And when spoken of specifically, the understanding seems to have been that access to these recordings would have been through a museum or institution of some sort. Though, at the same time, we begin to get speculations almost immediately about the possibilities for home-recorded songs and performances through the phonograph and the idea that these recordings can be preserved in families for generations, much like treasured photography albums. And let's not forget that in the reality of the times, the phonograph is only half of the story in trying to predict the role of technology in the future of music. People were also coming to terms with the future of the telephone, and in many discussions, the two were considered together. An 1878 article called The Phonograph opens by claiming that, for musical purposes, the technology of the phonograph makes the telephone scarcely wonderful. According to the article, telephones were already being connected to concert halls in Paris and London for performances to be listened to from afar. 
The writer comments that while it's wonderful that telephones can separate listeners from the performers in space, it's awesome that the phonograph can separate listeners in both space and time. That's literally awesome, of course, in the hundred billion hot dog sense. He then curiously suggests that it remains to be proven whether the phonograph could preserve chords and choirs as well as single sounds. If the writer misunderstood the indiscriminating nature of the phonograph in acoustic terms, he did acknowledge its indiscriminating nature in social terms. He asks a question that appears in various forms in this era. Aren't some sounds better off not being recorded? What kind of future is it when a terrible joke, he writes, or an awful performance of God Save the Queen is preserved for all time, and when anyone armed with a phonograph could blast such audible monstrosities repeatedly in the streets, as annoyingly as the barrel organs of his London. This is one of the first descriptions of the phonograph as a potential noise polluter, and it's also a reminder that even before smartphones, there are plenty of machines making annoying noises in the streets. He concludes optimistically that we've got to look on the bright side of life, Rather than lament the loss of the original performances of Mozart's Figaro or Rossini's Barber of Seville, we should instead be thankful that the voices of Patti, Albany, and Nielsen, who were all famous operatic stars, would be preserved for future generations. So, to honor the hopes and dreams of this long-forgotten journalist, we'll end this episode with a 1905 recording of Adelina Patti, a voice that he wrote we should be thankful to be able to hear. Adelina Patti was one of the most famous operatic stars of her time, in a golden age of opera that included Wagner, Verdi, and Tchaikovsky, among others. In fact, Verdi described her as a stupendous artist, and perhaps the finest singer who had ever lived. Hmm, I'll let you be the judge, but before you come to any conclusions on her artistry based on this recording, keep in mind that she was 62 at the time, and was perhaps past the peak of her vocal powers. But that being said... I think you might still be quite surprised by how, well, bad it sounds. Not only the recording, but also the performance itself. And this was the finest singer who had ever lived? These are the moments of dissonance that we're listening out for in this podcast. There's a lot to unpack here, and there are so many ways we can apologize for her and say that that was not how she really quote-unquote sounded like. There's also the crucial history of how sound recording itself affected what we expect from music, both recorded and live. Do we record music to sound like a live performance, or do we perform to sound like a recording? We'll be getting to these questions and themes in future episodes. But without further ado, here is Adelina Patti performing a song based on a poem by Irish poet Thomas Moore called The Last Rose of Summer. Before I press play, let me say goodbye and thanks for listening. Join me next time for a doozy of an episode I'll call Dawn of the Talking Machines. (laughs) 